Hope y'all are doing well. We are in our second to the last series of the year. Um, this is called The Forge of Perseverance. And as we've been uh, looking at this sermon series called The Forge of Perseverance, uh, we've been looking at <clears throat> some books, um, Peter and John, the letters of Peter and John. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to 1 John chapter 5. Jack was in 1 John last week, and I am going to be in 1 John this week. Um, the, uh, the videos, by the way, that we make each week um, or each month, Jordan does these. Uh, and so he really built a forge and, and, and did that. And this next, week, this next uh, month, as we're going into the Sea of Glass, we, Jack and I, when we made out this whole series, we made out, obviously, the entire sermon series last year around October. And so we had an awesome reason why we named it Sea of Glass back in October. But when we got here, we couldn't remember why we named it Sea of Glass but it's called Sea of Glass, and it's as Christmassy as it can be. So when we get to December, uh, we've got this awesome video where I got to use my boat and go out on the water for the video. Uh, thank you. And uh, that was fun <clears throat> to, you know, office that day from the boat. Um, anyway, but today uh, we are in First John chapter 5, Forge of Perseverance. And the idea of Forge of Perseverance as we're, as we're looking at it is, okay, I'm a believer, uh, and, and as a believer in Christ, I've got... 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years left in my life. What does persevering in the faith look like? What does it look like for me to walk as a Christian this life out? What is it, how's it supposed to look? And so that's what we've been talking about uh, this particular last few weeks. Um, and I'm going to round us out today in 1 John uh, chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, that's where we'll be. Let me pray and, and then we'll, we'll jump in. So let's pray. Lord, we need your help to come this morning as we've been looking at your scriptures uh, over the last five weeks talking about perseverance and what perseverance looks like and um, how it is that we're supposed to, to live for you. I pray that you would come now. And even though maybe this is uh, something that we've kind of been thinking about and dwelling on for the last four weeks, that the fifth week, because it's a new scripture, um, that we would see new things, new treasures, uh, and that you would reveal to us new ways that we can persevere in the faith and what perseverance in the faith looks like. Uh, I am absolutely, God, absolutely dependent upon you to come now. Um, my deep desire is to teach your scriptures as accurately and truthfully as I possibly can for the edification of the entire church. And so there's no way that I can do that by myself. And so, God, I pray that you would come now and speak through me to them so that, and to me so that we can all be edified by your word. Your word promises that it does such amazing things. And there's no way that, Lord, that they can hear and respond to these things that we're going to look at in your, in your text without you coming now by the power of the Spirit and moving in their heart and giving them a deep desire to want to hear these things and not just hear and learn, but also respond. And so, God, I pray that as they hear these things, that you would give them a deep desire to live these things out, not just this week, but all these weeks to come. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So perseverance can be, can be difficult, um, and, and perhaps this, this is why. Uh, this past week, we had our fifth annual Black and Blue Football Friday on Black Friday every year. We have a football game. We've done it five years in a row. Um, instead of Black Friday, we have Black and Blue Football Friday because so y'all get bruised up. And we all have an extreme amount of pain on Saturday. And the pain isn't because we necessarily play tackle or anything. It's just because we haven't run for 364 days. And so... Same with me. The next day, yesterday, uh, my entire body was killing me and my allergies acted up. So I, would, I was all sore, couldn't even get out, and I would sneeze. Achoo! 
ow, and then my whole body would hurt. Um, and the reason why is because um, I hadn't run for the entire year. I, I did run a little bit on a treadmill. I had a little, had a little spurt there in May, but it didn't, it didn't last as it normally doesn't, um, and to my shame. But anyway, so we had, this, uh, we had this football game, and then obviously the next day, and we're texting everybody. We're all kind of talking, and we're all in pain, well, except for the cops because they run all the time, and they worked out the next day, and we're all impressed. Um, but uh, the point is this. Uh, Here's my point, is because we're not continually practicing some kind of exercise and all of a sudden we put ourselves into something uh, that we haven't done in a long time, it yields pain. The same things with perseverance in the faith. Um, We know that we're supposed to persevere in the faith. We know we're supposed to preach the holiness. But as a believer, if we don't put ourselves in that path continually, whenever we finally do, immediately, it's going to yield painful results, as in, I know I'm supposed to pursue Christ. I know I'm supposed to pursue holiness. And all of a sudden, as I want to really amp up my perseverance in the faith, when I do, all of a sudden, all these awarenesses come into my mind of, oh, this is places I really need to work on. And that brings immediate pain. And what can we do? We can either decide to keep going because we know that there is relief afterwards. The gospel comes as a great salve. We have people come around us and walk us through. Or we can say it's too painful and walk away. And then come back again 364 days later or five months later because somebody gave a rousing sermon or you just decided to do it because it's January 1st. I don't know. And all of a sudden you go back in, pain again. And this is the way perseverance is. And so as we're going to see in the text today, perseverance isn't design or pursuing sanctification or continuing in the faith or however you want to phrase it um, after you become a believer while you're a Christian. It's designed that it's something that you continually do. It's not a... uh, do it for a little while, take a little bit off, because it's always going to yield some levels of, of pain. Um, <clears throat> good pain, but we mostly run from pain. Here in this particular text, um, and really in the entire book of John, uh, Jack, as he was preaching through First uh, John chapter 3 last week, sh- showed us a couple things about John. Uh, number one is, as John doesn't kind of write in a straight line like Paul, John has a couple things he wants to mention, and he mentions them, and then we, he, just, he just keeps kind of coming back to them as he writes. And so as we're in, ending up this letter, he's got three big picture kind of things that he's wanting to talk about in regard to what your life should look like. And in John-esque fashion, he ends his letter with telling you why he wrote. He does the same thing with his gospel. At the end of the letter, uh, at the end of the gospel, he tells you why he wrote. And in the end of the letter, he tells you why he wrote this letter. So in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, he tells us the whole point of why he wrote 1 John. And he tells us in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I write these things, the, this book, to you who believe, so we know it's to believers, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So with those first century Christians, he's wanting them to understand, there's a way for you to have assurance of your salvation. And I'm writing this book so that if these things are present in your life, then you can know since these things are present in my life, then I do have assurance of salvation. Every one of us at some point in our life, wherever we are in our, in our walk with Christ, is going to have these moments where we're like, Am I, am I really persevering? Am, do I, am I really a Christian? Am I, is there a way that I can be assured that I have salvation? And over and over, in this kind of cyclical, circular way, he mentions three things over and over that you should have in your life. Love of God, love for people, a desire to want to kill sin and not have sin in your life, and a desire to pursue truth. Over and over, those three things, those three things. That's my three points today. So if you write those down, you still have to listen, but 
you got the, you got the notes already. Um, and I've even alliterated them for you today so you can remember them. Uh, but those three things are, he just, he hits those things over and over in this particular book. And as he's writing those things, he's wanting you to see when those three things are present, you can have assurance of your salvation. You can know that I'm really in the faith and I'm walking with Christ. Um, so we'll see as we're walking through this particular text, those three things come up over and over. Love for God and people, uh, a, a hatred towards sin or a love to, for holiness, if you will, and a desire to want to know that you're pursuing truth. So look at verse 1 and we'll, we'll see these, these, um, these evidences or even actions. These are actions. These are things that you should be doing. If you're doing these things in your life, then you know you have uh, salvation. You can be assured of your salvation. So you can go ahead and put up the titles. Um, <clears throat> not just the first one. The assurance of salvation is kind of the point of the sermon. But go to the next page. So here's, here's actions for believers for assurance and, of perseverance. Um, I know that's a tongue twister. It wasn't intentional. Um, but things that believers should be doing. And if you're doing these things, then you can have assurance of your faith or assurance that you are persevering in the faith. So verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. All right, let's stop here. I want you to notice some tenses and phrases, and then we're going to uh, do one little tiny bit of systematic theology, and then we're going to keep going. So what he's talking about here is being born of God. He's talking about this big theological term called regeneration. Um, so whenever someone comes to faith, the Lord God comes to them before they are believers, and he does something in their heart. He regenerates their heart. This is an, an awakening, an eye-opening. This is a, an, oh, and what this awakening does is helps you see and understand the gospel. Helps you see and understand the beauty of being forgiven for all your sin. And once, once that revealing, like, this is what the gospel is. This is what, what it all entails. This is what happens whenever you trust. This is called being born again. Whenever that happens, faith happens. So you would say, if you're just wanting to say, they're simultaneous. But if you have to make an order, regeneration, faith. But it's not like regeneration and then a few months later, faith. It's not that. It's as soon as the Lord opens up your heart, faith. You believe in Jesus. You believe in his work. You believe in the death, burial, and resurrection for you on your behalf so that you can receive eternal life. So that's being born of God. And notice the tenses. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So you have been born again. You have been regenerated. And then you put your faith in Christ. But again, it's all a simultaneous kind of event. Um, the way the scriptures want you to always understand is that regeneration happens right when faith happens, although uh, regeneration proceeds. So we're talking about believers here. So for the people that are believers, here's the first action, the first thing you should see in your life. Here it is. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. <clears throat> and here it is. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So the first action that we see there is this. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, an action of a believer is, right there at the end of verse 1, if you've been regenerated, you have a love for God and a love for the people of God. They define the people of God as anybody else that's been regenerated. You have a love for the Father and whoever has been born of Him. So <coughs> this means that those that are believers, uh, they have a deep love not just for God, but for all the children of God too. Because they're your fellow brothers and sisters. They're not just people that are Jesus followers that kind of aren't related to you and you don't really want to know them. <laughs> they're your fellow brothers and sisters. So let's talk about 
Um, regeneration, and then let's talk about the implications or the assurance. Or if I'm assured I have salvation, then these things should be present. Love for God, love for people. John Stott talks about this idea of regeneration. He says, our present continuing activity of believing is a result and therefore the evidence of our past experience of the new birth by which we became and remain God's children. So the new birth or regeneration, when that happens, that Every time that happens, that means we have now a continually present activity of believing. That's the result. Every time we are regenerated, there's always a continuing, ongoing belief in Jesus. We'll get to that actually later on, uh, but we need to understand that that's what regeneration begets. It, it begets faith, but not just an initial faith, but an ongoing faith. And this faith does something. It says that whenever we become a believer... It automatically means we're supposed to have a love for the Father and a love for fellow believers. Now, everyone here is going to be yes and amening me with love for the Father. Of course, it's God. How can I not have a love for the Father? He just saved me. But I think the the more difficult one is love for fellow believers. Let's make sure we understand love for fellow believers. I don't think what he means in the first century mind is just kind of this Big, huge, broad agreement that, yeah, I'm supposed to love other Christians. Yeah, sure, that sounds right. Um, because he calls them love for God, everyone who loves, loves who has been born of him. He categorizes them as the same way that you were categorized as being born again. So what that means is there's no room here for Christians that don't also love their fellow brothers and sisters. And we don't just mean some kind of broad agreement that we're supposed to. What he means is love in such a way that we want to actually be in community with them. Love in such a way that we want to be intertwined in life with them on an ongoing basis. No one in the first century that's a believer would have thought a broad love for Christians, my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, doesn't mean that I also am supposed to do life with them. It's like, like, yeah, I love them. Just don't want to hang out with them. That's not the idea at all. There is no um, in the first century mind where we're supposed to say, you know, I really love Jesus, but can't really stand the church. That, that's foreign to the idea of the first century. You can't love Jesus and hate his wife. So here, this, this first implication or first action that we should have is a love for other people. Calvin says it this way, since God regenerates us by faith, he must necessarily be loved by us as father. And this love embraces all his children. So faith and love for others are always integrated. So what that means for us then, in this particular church, the way we've set up discipleship to happen is community. So as I said, they're actually all alliterated, all three. The first one, they all start with C, is community. So do I, am I living out a life that shows actions of a believer? Community. Are you in community? Are you actively involved in the life, your life, and your spouse actively involved in the lives of other people that are believers, intersecting intentionally lives with them week in, week out. If you can do it day in, day out, I know that's difficult because we're much more transient than they were in the first century. Um, but in the first century, it was, it's not like everybody had their own garage and their own uh, lawnmowers and weed eaters. Like we all have our own. If I want to cut my grass, I go to my shed and get my lawnmower. And if my neighbor wants to cut his grass... He goes to his shed and gets his lawnmower. And if the other, but that's like, they had all things in common. I need to cut my grass. 
there's the community lawnmower. I'm going to go get it because there's one because that's how we're supposed to live. Now, I know we don't live that way, but that's the way that we're supposed to, in every possible way, shoot for. We're supposed to have all things in common. I know that you're all not going to have a community lawnmower in your community group. Maybe you will, and, and you're really striving for it. But my point is, is that you're supposed to be so intertwined with one another. And this is actually an evidence. This is actually an action of being in the faith. Perseverance is that you have such a deep love for other people that have been born of God that you want to be in community with them. Now, this isn't to the exclusion of people that haven't been born of God. Of course, you're supposed to love unbelievers and be around them. That's the whole point of the Great Commission. But in this particular text, as we're talking about assurance of salvation, we're supposed to realize that a way that we can know that we are living out the faith properly, if you will, is that we have a deep desire to be in community with other believers. So, if this is your church or whatever church you're a part of, how are you doing? There's a program here for that. And every church that's any kind of church that wants to follow the the, the scriptures has something for that. Every church that I've ever been a part of has systems set up for you to be a part of a community. And it's not just because they really want want you there so that every time they have a service, they can pad their numbers. That's not the point at all. The point is... Because the Bible says, in order for you to grow as a believer and persevere in the faith, it's clear that the Scriptures want you to be in community with other Christians. It's, it's designed for you, back to the football analogy, whenever you're walking in pain, to have a community to come around you and help you walk through that pain. Instead of, after me, like me, quitting after a day. Um, back to the football analogy, I haven't quit community. Um, so... The first thing that we can see is this, is that everyone who believes that Jesus Christ is born, is born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And this love extends out to not just a broad agreement of love that we're supposed to have for fellow believers, but it extends to where we are absolutely intentionally letting ourselves be known and getting to know fellow believers. Now, I know that doesn't happen overnight. It's not like, hey, new person, Here's my life details. Uh, that's not what we're saying. We're saying you come, you're intentionally putting yourself in the, in the life of the church and community. And you go to one and it's like, that one's not going to work. You go to the next one. You, there's more than just one here. In any church there is, there should be several places for you to go, get into a community. But the deep desire is that you would do that. And after a period of time, as you're getting to know people, then you start sharing life with them. Um, and, and as a matter of fact, at Remedy, um, when we first started Remedy... Uh, we, we separated these, our community groups out by, we tried to separate, because we wanted them to be more appealing. We tried to separate them out by life stage, if you will, so that you had something in common. And we found out after about a year, that was a bad idea. And so we, we've tried to, as much as we can, let all the community groups, although we are very young, let all the community groups kind of be a microcosm of what a church should be. There should be all ages represented in every single community group because that's what the church is so that there's wisdom and there's newness and there's trying to figure it out in the middle and everybody has people that can um, look ahead to and say help me and it's people that are behind that they can pull ahead they have a, 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 a Timothy and a uh, Paul in every kind of in every kind of group anyway so that's the first thing that we should have in, in the life of, of our of, of our ongoing pursuit of perseverance is community, a deep love for people. So C, community. The next one you'll see right here in verse two and following, it says, by this, we know 
that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Isn't that sentence interesting? He just told us in verse 1 that we're supposed to love other Christians. And then he tells us, how can you know this? Interesting language. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. So the obedience of commandments and pursuing obedience of commandments shows that we love others because God has just designed it that we will pursue holiness better when we're together with other people rather than trying to be islands. And then he says this, um, verse 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Okay, so the first action in the perseverance of faith to know that we have assurance of faith is that we're actually actively putting ourselves in the life of a community body of believers. The second one is that we are pursuing his commandments. See community, second C, commandments. So here's the second action. An action of a believer um, to give yourself assurance is that there's an ongoing pursuit of holiness via keeping his commandments. Now, I, I reworded it by saying pursuit of holiness rather than keeping commandments, just because if I say, go keep commandments, you're like, eh. But if I say, go pursue holiness, you're like, that sounds better. I like that. Um, and so um, I just reworded it because I think that that appeals to our inner senses more, if you will, to say, I want to pursue holiness rather than, I want to be a commandment keeper. Um, perhaps if you're really, you know, a... Uh, Pharisee law kind of person, you lead on that side, then you love it. But anyway, um, I was about to fly into stuff, but let's not do that. Um, but some of you probably not. Uh, but we should realize that, that keeping commandments and love for God, law and love are not necessarily supposed to always be at odds. Uh, keeping commandments and love for God actually go hand in hand. And then as he tells us this, <clears throat> he makes what might be one of the most breathtaking statements of the Bible, at least in my, in my opinion. Whenever I think about commandment keeping and just how difficult it feels, this is what he says. Verse 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And then he says like, what? And his commandments are not burdensome. How's that? Because whenever I try to keep commandments, I find it very difficult. Why is he saying that it's not burdensome? Take that statement in for a minute and think about it. Think about your fight, your daily fight, hopefully, to keep God's commandments. And how difficult it might be. And then hear him say, and it's not burdensome. Now, I think that's pretty breathtaking. Let's just hear some of the commandments from the scriptures. You have the Ten Commandments. In our house, we have a song. Uh, number one, we've just begun. God should be first in your life. Number two is the idol rule. Those graven images aren't nice. I'll stop. But you can Google it and you can figure it out. But it's a way to remember them. It's called the perfect ten. But you have the first four that deal with your relationship with you and God. Have no other gods before me. Don't have any idols. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath. And then after you have those four, you have more commandments on how you're supposed to deal with fellow men. It says, honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not covet. Now, <clears throat> I'm betting that those things are difficult for us to keep. 
And then in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus kind of references those and says, let me explain what those mean just in case you weren't understanding them. Whenever I told you that you shouldn't murder, you also shouldn't be angry with your brother. If you're angry, it's just like murdering. And then he also says, some others from the Sermon on the Mount, you should always reconcile with your brother or your sister if you're estranged from them. If you come to offer your gift at the altar, stop. Don't offer your gift at the altar. Instead, go make your relationship right with the person that you have uh, something with and then come back and after you've reconciled, then come back and offer your, your gift at the altar. Or you're coming to church to offer up worship and praise. He says that, I mean, again, that's fine. You should worship, but before you do that, go fix that relationship with someone and then come back. It's basically what he's saying. Or whenever he talked about you shouldn't commit adultery, Jesus says, actually, um, it's not just the act. You shouldn't commit lust after a woman or a woman after a man. That's actually the intent of the law, not just adultery. Or there's some others in the sermon out. Don't divorce. Don't just take, don't take oaths. You should always reach out to people who are quote unquote evil. You should always give to the needy. You should love your enemies and pray for them. These are all commandments that the Lord gives us. And we hear all that among all the others in the New Testament. And we ask ourselves, how is it that that's what he says in verse 3? How is it that he can make this statement and his commandments are not burdensome? Because they feel very difficult. Uh, I want to make sure that we can understand burdensome and difficult maybe not are the, aren't the same thing. L- let, me, let me give it to you this way. Let me, let me picture a little illustration for you. Imagine as you're getting married to your spouse. And as you're getting married to your spouse, whenever that happens, you know, like someone's able to t- come and tell you, your spouse is never going to sin against you. Let's say it's actually possible. <laughs> um, some of you are like, that's right, it ain't possible. Um, my wife would be like, it ain't possible. So anyway, um, let's say you're coming together, right, for the very first time and you're about to get married and you know, like someone, someone's able to tell you, your spouse is never, ever, ever, ever going to sin against you ever. Your spouse is going to be perfect. No one at that particular moment, whenever they're getting married to someone and they know their spouse is never going to sin against them ever, thinks to themselves as they're getting married, well, how am I going to be faithful to this person? No one thinks that. That's, I think, what he means when he says his commandments are not burdensome. This is what I think he means. The things that the Lord asks us to do in regard to keeping his commands are not burdensome because of the forgiveness that he's already extended. Like we've, we come at salvation with this huge bucket of needing forgiveness and all the future sins and the Lord just washes over us with this amazing amount of forgiveness. And then he says, I want you to do these things. And when he says he wants to do these things, because we've just experienced this amazing love of God and all of the forgiveness that he's given to us, when he asks us to do these things and we know that he's never ever going to sin against us, we will against him, but he's always going to forgive when we do. And he asks us to do these things, we're like, Well, of course I want to do those things. Those things don't feel burdensome because of the great love that you've given me. Why would I ever feel like it's burdensome to do these things you've asked me whenever you've forgiven so much? And so whenever we hear this, we say, of course, whenever I see this, this statement that says his his commandments are not burdensome, it makes total sense. James Boyce says it this way, love 
divorced from obedience to the command of, commands of God is not love. And so the reason why his commandments are not burdensome is rooted in the first thing we just talked about, a deep love for God. This amazingly deep love for God that you already have because he's forgiven you of all of your sin, which we are acutely aware of. You should be acutely aware of, always. Not in a way that makes you feel defeated, but acutely aware of all the sin that you've been forgiven because it gives you a deep desire to pursue holiness. Let me read a a quote to you Um, because I think that once we understand that because of this new life that we've been given from God pushes us on to love him and keep his commandments, um, James Barclay has this, this quote that he says where he helps us understand. And he sounds like Yoda. In other words, he takes the direct object and puts it at the first sentence. Since this force awakens, we should, we should you know, enjoy it. Anyway, it says this, uh, difficult the command, when, in first service, when I started reading it, for some reason I went into Yoda voice, which I don't know why, but it says, difficult the commands of Christ are, burdensome they are not. So yes, the commands of Christ are difficult, burdensome they are not. And here's why. For Christ never laid a commandment on a man without giving him the strength to carry it out. So the reason why they're not burdensome is not only because he has lavished you with an amazing love and forgiveness of sin, but he's also given you the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to keep these commandments. And then James Barclay says, or or Barclay says this amazing, I mean just amazing statement. It's the most optimistic thing I've ever heard about commandment keeping. He says this, And every commandment that's laid upon us provides us another chance to show our love for God. Oh, another commandment. Perfect. If I keep this, another opportunity to show how much I love Jesus. Isn't that the most amazing view towards commandment keeping you ever heard? Another opportunity. Another chance to show Jesus how much I love him. So difficult the commandments of Christ are. Burdensome they are not. So I think the reason why we find them so difficult is because... It's not in our nature to keep them. Praise God, he's given us a new nature. Praise God, he's given us a new nature. And lavished us with love and forgiveness and given us the power of the Spirit. So now, when we hear this this declaration to keep commandments, and we hear someone like John say that they're not burdensome, it makes more sense. They aren't burdensome. Jesus says, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and take, have rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Probably the greatest gospel invitation in Matthew chapter 11 ever given. He also says, uh, regarding keeping commandments in love, he says in John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In John chapter 15, verse 10, if you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love. You will abide in my love. So what we see here is it's impossible to have love of God without obedience. And it's also impossible to have obedience without love for God. They go hand in hand and they work back and forth. It's like a circle. Love for God feeds your obedience. Obedience for God, his commandments feeds your love. And it just continually grows. Now, I want to say one last thing about obedience because um, we're all uh, in different places. We all have different things we struggle with and some people have been Christians for a long long time and some people haven't. Um, 
So let, I want to illustrate it this way. Um, right now, at this particular moment, I am participating in No Shave November. Now, I realize you can't see that. Unless you're standing right here, you would have no idea that I'm participating in No Shave November. And I would grant that you have to stand on stage to actually know that I am participating in that. But to just to let you know, some guys like me are follically challenged. And we live with it every day, especially as you rub our faces in it in the month of November, um, where we can't grow a beard and we feel, you know, less manly. Um, but I'm obviously working on it and the Lord's going to sanctify me through it. Uh, but for us that are follically challenged, and I know some of you can grow a beard like during my sermon and we're all impressed. Uh, but here's the deal. Um, <laughs> What have I experienced in my own life as being follically challenged is mostly by you hairy men, derision (laughs) and never encouragement, but mostly like, ha ha, hairless one, look at this thing, check out the chops I grew in college. And, and And I'm like, well, great for you. One day, but I found out, I did some internet research and the truth is, is that, um, Once you hit your 20s, wherever you are is pretty much where you are. And if you don't have a full beard by 20, you never will. However, it does say, for those of us that are follically challenged, we'll have our hair on our head longer. So I don't know if that's true, but I hope it is. Because when you're bald, I'm going to call you baldy. Anyway, here's my whole point. What are you doing, Fudd? Here's what I'm trying to say. Um, For all of you big bearded men who mock us follically challenged men during the month of November especially and give us no encouragement... um, I think that uh, my point is this. Some Christians have, some guys have the ability to grow and some guys are just much more disadvantaged in growing beards. Let's just equate that now to pursuing sanctification. Some people have an ability or have been Christians for a long time and are able to pursue holiness at astronomical levels. And some people are new to the faith. Some people are challenged. And so for those that are new, for those that are uh, pursuing sanctification but, but find it difficult, the best thing that we can do is not stand in judgment. What's wrong with you? Get your act together. And I'm not saying for those people, just give them all kinds of grace and let them send it up. I, I, absolutely, to be sure, I'm not saying that we should tolerate their sin or we should, should do anything like that. But at the same time, for those that it's difficult to keep commandments compared to some, the best thing we can do is come alongside them and give them encouragement and walk with them, bringing it back to point number one, the whole reason we're supposed to fight sanctification in community. Community is the only way that you will find further walking down the road success, if you will, in pursuing sanctification or keeping commandments or pursuing holiness. It's, it's absolutely necessary. Like, whenever you go lift by yourself and it's painful and you don't have anybody there to spot you and push you through it the next time, you won't, you won't come back unless you're just super type A. But most people will like, forget this. <laughs> but it's the same thing in regard to pursuing sanctification. If we have someone as we're walking into the pain or if it's more difficult for you to come alongside you and encourage you and say, let's do it. You can do this. I know it's painful. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to hold you accountable. Um, you'll continually walk in there. You'll continually walk in that. So <clears throat> here we see the second evidence. The first one was community. The second one is commandments. We have a deep desire to want to keep the commandments. And it's absolutely necessary for us to have people come alongside us. Um, and obviously, if you revert back to the illustration, there is no coming beside me and encourage me in the beard. It's not going to happen. So all illustrations break down. But anyway, uh, back to the actual point. 
Um, as we get here, uh, you, can, you can see that he talks about more about what it means to, uh, to be born of God. He's, he, as again, John writes in this kind of cyclical circle, circular motion, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. So he's circling back to making sure that you understand born of God. And then he says, overcomes the world. So this idea of overcoming the world is trying to help you see in Christ, you've already overcome the world. In other words, since the, the gospel has already been declared, what's true of you, that the Lord has already justified you and declared you completely righteous, that you are already, in some ways, partakers in the victory of sanctification. You're already a, a victorious partaker in holiness. You still have to pursue it. But what's true of you in the eyes of God is that you're already declared victorious. And so I think that John's trying to help you see that it's not burdensome because you've already overcome the world. I mean, you've already been declared holy. So it's not burdensome because you've already been declared holy. But you still need to pursue holiness. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? So bringing it all the way back to kind of what he's already said. That regeneration, when you put your faith in Christ, that gives you the victory. So since the victory is yours already in regard to holiness, of course you should pursue it. It's already yours. Walk in it. It's yours already. And then we get to uh, this next section. And he gives us in this next section what I think is the third, uh, the third thing. Um, I want to read this one last quote about Calvin from Calvin before we get into that third one. Regarding pursuing holiness and pursuing commandment keeping, he says this talking about the victory is already ours, that we've already overcome the world. He says, this confidence does not, however, uh, the fact that we've already been partakers of the victory, that confidence that he's God given to us does not introduce indifference. So when I tell you you've already overcome the world, it doesn't just make you indifferent to holiness. It's like, well, it's mine. Take a break. He said, it does not in- introduce indifference, but instead renders us always anxiously intent on fighting. So since you have been given the victory, you don't, take, you don't take off in holiness, but instead it's supposed to invigorate you to pursue holiness with even more passion, to fight, as Calvin says. All right, the last one. Remember, as John's writing, he's kind of always talking about three things. Love of other people. He's talking about not breaking commandments and truth. So we have community, commandments, and here's the last one. And I want to help you see how he talks about truth in this last little section. Um, six, I'm actually going through 13. These, these breaks aren't in there. You can see that the, after verse 12, there's a little break in the ESV, but that's not in the original. There's no such thing as breaks. And verse six through 13, there's a, a reoccurring word that John is going to employ. And if you'll notice it, uh, it's used uh, eight different times. It's the word testimony or testify. You can see um, testify, testify, testimony, 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 testimony. That's how, that's how the sequential order that these words are used. And in, in this context, what he's trying to help you see is people that are believers pursue truth. And the way that they pursue truth is by using means by which that you can know that the things are true. In the first century in Semitic, in, in Semitic life, that if there are two witnesses and they testify to what's being said, then this testimony is now true. And so as a believer, you always want to pursue truth. Above anything and all things, truth is more important. So here we see verse 6. It says, this is, the, this is he who came by water and by blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. 
And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Now, we'll stop there because you, if you're reading that, you're like, what is he talking about? Water and blood and Spirit, huh? Um, let me explain what's going on there, and then you can see he's going to keep using the word testimony over and over. But that helps Understanding 6 through 8 helps you understand the rest. You can see if we receive the testimony of man, testimony of God. All right, so let's understand 6 through 8 first. All right, whenever he uses the word water and blood here, um, just to kind of make it a little bit faster, the water is talking about the baptism of Jesus um, and the testimony that the Father bore witness to who he was at the baptism of Jesus. And the blood is talking about the cross of Jesus. Um, Actually, Calvin says that it's the baptism in the Lord's Supper. I disagree with Calvin. Don't tell anybody. But I disagree with Calvin here. Um, I think it's talking about the water and the, the, the cross. Um, and then as you're reading, you have verse 6 where he says, you have baptism and you have the blood, which is the cross of Jesus. And these two things testify. They're testified not by water, but only but by the water and the blood, by Jesus' baptism and his cross. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify. Again, We're pursuing truth, and we need testimony of in Semitic life, at least two. If there's two witnesses or even three, and here it strengthens it because there are three, then what we're hearing is true. And so what he's trying to present to you as a case is what you're hearing is true. The baptism of Jesus where the the Trinity was present, and all the things that they're saying about the Father, the death of Christ, and all the things that that, that are being um, told you that are true about the death of Christ and the Spirit are all testifying to you, and they're agreeing that... Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the one that if you believe, you can be, you can be forgiven of all your sin, etc., etc. You know the gospel. So it says, these three are true, for if there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God, that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in him. So if you believe in Christ, now you have the truth in you. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in, here it is again, the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony. So he's laid all that groundwork to help you see. People that are, that are believers in Christ must pursue truth. And here's why you can know what it's true because we have three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood. So what you're about to hear, what's about to be testified to you, finally as we get to verse 11, and this is the testimony, it's absolutely true. So all that he said is, is as he's building to 11, it's true because he has two or three witnesses, the baptism of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, and the spirit. Um, and then he says, and here it is. Here's this final testimony. Here's this, this word of truth. It is this, verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So for people that are believers, an action is this. Put up number three for me. This seems so obvious, but let me explain it to you. An action of a believer is a continued belief in Jesus for eternal life. So, if you're using the C's, community, commandments, Christ-centered, continued belief. Act like that started with a C. Um, (laughs) So, 
The three C's here. This one is continued belief. Now, we need to understand what I'm trying to get at here. And I think what, what John is trying to get at. He's trying to help you see that the testimony that he's given you is, and this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. The way that we can know we have eternal life is belief in the Son of God. He doesn't mean a, a belief that starts and it's just kind of the starting point, and then after that, it's based on whatever you want to do, or it's based on you're pursuing doing things. Instead, it's an everyday belief again. Every day, I, my only hope is a belief in Jesus. Let me explain what I mean. Um, first of all, regarding unbelief, John Stott says this, unbelief is not a misfortune to be pitied. It's a sin to be deplored. So unbelief is awful. It's not something that we pity. It's a sin to be deplored. Its sinfulness lies in the fact that it is a contradiction, that it contradicts the word of the one true God and thus attributes falsehood to him. So John here is writing to believers, trying to help them see that, that you don't just need to have a point of belief and then meander over into unbelief and think that perseverance or assurance comes by keeping stuff. Instead, the way that you keep these things, namely love for God, community, all the other things that we know we're supposed to do in the text, is every day we have a new belief in Jesus. Continue belief in Jesus every day you wake up on what he's done and that he's declared you righteous and that you've already overcome the world and that the victory's already yours. That continued belief in his person and work on the cross is what provides you continued assurance. It's not something that we believe in once and then that's it. And then we go do our best to white knuckle it for sanctification. Instead, we have to have a continual belief that the victory has already been given to us. Um, let, me, let me illustrate it for you this way. Uh, I watched this commercial the other day. And there's a, uh, I think it's an Android commercial. I'm not sure. But there's like hundreds of people out in the forest. And it's like dead silent. And they're all just dancing. Everybody's just dancing around. They all have headphones on. And so they walked up there and they see everybody dancing. They're all dancing different because everybody's listening to different songs. So when you get there, you find, out, you find the dancing and everybody's really quiet. You find your song you put on your headphones that you like the best. And then you just start dancing. And then it's just more people, more people. It looks really awesome. Um, not that we'll do it. But anyway, uh, so you, you walk in and you see, let's, imagine you walk up to this particular scenario um, from the outside, you didn't have the, the memo that there's a dance party, bring your own headphones. And you walk in or up to this place in the woods and you see everybody. What you're going to think to yourself is they're all the same. Everybody's the exact same. They must all be listening. If you look really closely, you'll see that they're not all the same because everybody's dancing differently to different rhythms, to different beats. They're all, probably all because they're all listening to different songs. Um, but the truth is that they're not all the same. They all look like they're the same. On the outside, they all look like they're the same. But the truth is, they're not all the same because they're all listening to absolute different things. And that's what we're talking about when we come to sanctification. Just because you look moral. We can, we can put everybody in here and you can all kind of look the same. But just because you're uh, trying really hard to not... To not break commandments or you're trying really hard to be in community, you might think, well, 
I'm a Christian because I'm in community. I'm a Christian because I'm keeping commandments. And you can look like people that are believers, but that doesn't mean that you are. You don't judge if you're a believer based on if you look like other believers. That's a really bad way to get assurance. Assurance does not come by looking like other Christians. That's why I think this third point is so important. Assurance comes primarily from continued belief in Jesus. I'm, gonna, I'm going to believe Jesus again today. What he has said of me, that he has declared me completely righteous and therefore I'm going to walk in that holiness. And now that I believe that, now I'm going to keep commandments. Now I'm going to live in community. Now I'm going to do all the other things that the Lord says. But I'm not going to just do these things and make them the object of my faith. If I, it's me and my ability to do stuff or being community is the object of my faith to think I have right assurance or being a person that keeps commandments, I'm not going to make those things the object of my faith. Instead, Jesus is the object of my faith always. And because I have a belief in the gospel and what he's done, that's going to be the thing, be the thing that motivates me then to therefore keep commandments. It's really easy for us, I think, especially if you've been a believer for a while, to make moralism the prize instead of Jesus. It's the tricky part where you make the object of your faith love or truth or not sinning these three things rather than Jesus. Jesus has to be the object of your faith continually. That's why continued belief in Jesus is absolutely necessary. <clears throat> Calvin says, the apostle who wrote these things, that is, that eternal life is to be sought nowhere else in Christ in order so that in order that they who were believers already might believe, that is, make progress in believing. So the initial faith is necessary for salvation, but also every day you have to continually make progress in believing. That doesn't mean you have to believe harder. <laughs> you believe again every day the same truth, which is the Lord has declared me already an overcomer of the world. The victory's already been given mine. And so since he has declared me holy, I'm basing this assurance in my pursuit of salvation or uh, pursuit of holiness on the fact that he's already declared me holy. That's why I'm going to be in community. That's why I'm going to be a commandment keeper. That's why I'm going to pursue truth, etc., etc. Now, as we, we've seen here um, in verse thir 13, he promises us then eternal life. You can see in verse 13, 11 through 13, he has this reoccurring uh, idea of eternal life. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, whenever... You read the scriptures, the, the truth of what's happened in the gospel can be said a lot of different ways. There's lots of paradigms you can look at. There's lots of different portraits of understanding the same thing. And this particular text, the way that he wants you to understand the forgiveness that you received in Christ is by majoring in on life, eternal life. Not forgiveness of sin or whatever, but instead life, eternal life. So what I want to do then uh, to conclude this particular sermon is read you some other texts in the Bible that highlight this, this portrait of being a Christian, this understanding of the gospel. There's, we're just going to take the diamond 
of the gospel, and we're going to turn it, and we're going to zoom in on that one little glaring, beautiful, bright, shining part of the gospel, which is eternal life. I mean, you can look all over the place for marriage, and you can look all over the place on how we're, we're the bride of Christ, or we've been forgiven of sin, or he does all these things, but we're going to zoom in on this one beautiful piece of the diamond of the gospel, eternal life. And I want you to hear the Bible as it talks about this amazing eternal life that you've been given. John chapter 3 says this. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of God, the Son of Man, be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. If, if, if you want to... Listen to these with your eyes closed so you can concentrate, then do that. But hear all these verses talking to you about this amazing eternal life that you've been given. John chapter 4, Jesus said to her as he's talking to the woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water, namely just regular water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In John chapter 5, he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. As Jesus is talking to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, he says, You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me so that you may have life. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life, and they may have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the, shepherd lay, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And lastly, Jesus in the high, priest, high priestly prayer as he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane says this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up to his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So eternal life isn't some ethereal, floating body up in heaven in the clouds with a harp. That's not eternal life where you just don't ever have to die and be worried about dying. Eternal life being offered. The beauty of this gospel, as we look at this beautiful picture of eternal life being offered to you, is that you get to, as he says in John chapter 17, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. It's a personal, deep, intimate, communing knowledge of the God of all creation. 
That's eternal life. Knowing God forever. Because of Jesus. That's the prize of this persevering. So you want to know if you have eternal life? You want to know if you have assurance? Be in community? Absolutely. Keep the commandments? Absolutely. But number three, a continued belief every day in Christ and what he's done. And when you reach the end of your life and you are assured of your salvation, then you are ushered into eternal life, namely knowing forever the creator of the universe and Jesus Christ, his son. That is an amazing reason to worship. That is an amazing reason to stand and give him all the glory. Here at Remedy, we put all of our worship, not all, but most of our worship at the end of the service because we believe if the Lord has revealed himself in his word, then we have ample time to respond. And so however the Holy Spirit's wired you and however the Holy Spirit's leading you right now, be obedient to it. If you cheered like crazy for your favorite team yesterday, woo! They won! Jesus Christ has given you eternal life. What I just did should be like multiplied by 50 million, right? We have been given eternal life. His commandments are not burdensome. Thank the Lord he gave me a new nature. That's why I can keep these things. And he's given me a deep love, not just for him, but also for his children. And every day I can wake up knowing I have already overcome the world. The victory has already been given to me. So yes, I'm going to wake up with a belief in Jesus every day. And I'm going to lift my arms and lift my hands and give him the glory now. Let's pray. Jesus, would you come now in power and give us a sweet time of worship because of what you've done for us. We love you. And we thank you for this time that we have together as a body to be together as a body and worship together as a church body. We pray this all in Jesus.